Who are they, and what roles do they play in the end times purposes of God as they unfold? We'll learn more as we join Pastor Phil now for our study. According to the Mishnah, now the Mishnah is a uh, highly esteemed book of Jewish oral traditions. And according to the Mishnah, the high priest, when he went into the Holy of Holies once a year on the day of Yom Kippur, it was said that he could look from the Holy of Holies through the curtain, because it was parted now, Through the door of the temple, he could look all the way through the eastern gate. It all lined up. Excavations in the 1970s showed that where the eastern gate is today, the original eastern gate is right beneath where the eastern gate is today. So it's still in the same line. And I have been on the on the Temple Mount. I have stood, in fact, I've got a picture, standing behind this little gazebo, looking through it, And I've got a picture where you can see that the eastern gate is dead ahead. Interesting. It's also interesting that when the Muslims built this little gazebo-like structure, they gave it two names. They call it the Dome of the Spirits and the Dome of the Tablets. And some believe that that could have been their way of saying that they did believe that where they put this little gazebo, they believed it was the spot where originally the Ark of the Covenant sat in the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant had the tablets of the law inside of it, Dome of the Tablets, and the Shekinah glory of the Spirit of God hovering above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, and maybe why they called it the Dome of the Spirits. I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Maybe the Muslims themselves have helped us to understand this is in fact the place that the Ark of the Covenant once stood. So according to Dr. Kaufman and other scholars, the temple could technically be rebuilt 100 meters to the north of the Dome of the Rock, and you wouldn't have to demolish the Dome of the Rock. Now, we get excited about that in America. Believe me when I tell you, the Jews and the Muslims are not excited about that. The Muslims don't want a temple up there next to their Dome of the Rock. And the Orthodox Jews believe that that Dome of the Rock desecrates the whole Temple Mount. So they're not excited about the prospect of putting it alongside the Dome of the Rock either. In the present political climate, we don't know what's going to happen when the Antichrist comes. I mean, he's going to have power to be very persuasive. And enemies are going to begin to work together because it's all going to be according to God's plan. So if they do rebuild the Temple... Where the Dome of the Spirits is, 100 meters to the north of the Dome of the Rock, that would place, listen, the Dome of the Rock in the outer court of the temple area. Now that becomes extremely exciting when you read verse 2 of Revelation 11. John is told to measure the temple. 
Verse 2, but leave out, the Greek is literally cast out or throw out as if something has been defiled, but cast out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Wow, that's pretty amazing. We are dealing here with a period of time that Jesus spoke of in Luke 21, verse 24 where he said, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. During the Six-Day War in 1967, where the Israelis launched a preemptive strike against the Arabs and recaptured the entire city of Jerusalem, up until that point, they had control of half of it. Half of it was under Israeli control. The other half was under uh, Arab control, I think Jordanian control. And so in 67, uh, they launched this preemptive strike, and they captured the entire rest of the city. Uh, at that time, people that understood Bible prophecy all over the world at that moment, as they saw what was going on on TV, they were convinced that the prophecy of Jesus had just been fulfilled. The times of the Gentiles had been fulfilled. Jerusalem was now under complete Jewish control. However, almost immediately, something very strange happened. General Moshe Dayan, in a misguided attempt to offer an olive branch to the Muslim community, let them retain control of the 35-acre Temple Mount. Now, we think, man, he blew it. But God was giving grace. God was saying... I'm going to give you more time. I'm not ready to fulfill all the events that Revelation talks about. God was giving us more time. I'm, I'm glad I wasn't saved back in 67. Uh, you know, I'm thankful that God has been gracious, that God has been giving us time, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So Moshe Dayan gave back the Temple Mount to the control of the Muslims, the Arabs there. And it's still being trampled under the foot of these Gentiles to this day. The times of the Gentiles began in 606 B.C. when the Babylonians came and conquered Judah, Jerusalem, and so on. And it appears that they're going to continue until Jesus Christ comes back and establishes millennial kingdom. So that's going to be the times of the Gentiles. It seems that way. The, from, Bab- from Babylon, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, all the way through until Jesus returns puts his feet on the Mount of Olives, it cleaves in two, and he leads us in a procession through the East Gate, the Golden Gate, which the Muslims have kind of stoned up because they figured, they planted a, they put a, a cemetery in front of the East Gate on the, on the hill of the Kidron Valley because they figured, you know, how's the Messiah going to come through a graveyard that he'll, he'll be defiled? Now, how's he going to get through a, a, a gate where, every, where we've bricked it up? Well, guess again, all right? And he's going to lead us through the Golden Gate into the city where he is going to establish his throne. And that will end the times of the Gentiles, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Gentiles is often synonymous with unbelievers. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to reign. And so from the time that the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies until Jesus returns, it'll be 42 months. In Bible prophecy, a prophetic month is uh, 30 days. 42 months will be 1,260 days. 
So we're now coming into a period of time the Bible has more to say about than any other period of time in human history. These three and a half years, the Bible has more to say about these three and a half final years than it has to say about any other period of time in human history. And it's very well documented. 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, time, times, and a half of times. The Bible, the Holy Spirit couldn't be any more clear to keep people from spiritualizing it, to give us all these little things, you know. This is a literal three and a half years, the Great Tribulation period. Now, verse 3. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Two witnesses. Why two witnesses? Well, the Bible says in several places, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing shall be established, correct? Besides that, when Moses sent in the spies to spy out the land of Canaan, how many did he send in? Twelve. Only two were worth their salt, though. Only two brought back a good and accurate report. The other ten were a disaster. Well, Joshua was one of the two good witnesses. And so when he later on sent in spies to spout the land, when he became the leader of the nation, he only sent in two. He learned his lesson from Moses' mistake. But this idea of two witnesses, okay, we see throughout the scriptures. When Jesus rose from the dead, uh, there were two angels in the tomb that, that first resurrection Sunday morning. One on one end where his body lay and one on the other end. So we see the two angels bearing witness that he is not here. He has risen. Go tell his disciples and so on. They told the women that morning. When Jesus sent his disciples out to be a witness for him and to preach the gospel, how many did he send out? Two by two, right? So the idea of of two witnesses is very biblical. And it's going to be their responsibility, verse 3 tells us, to prophesy. To prophesy to the world. Now, I want you to understand this. In the New Testament, the idea of, of prophesying doesn't necessarily have to mean predicting the future. Oftentimes it does mean that. But the word simply means to proclaim or to preach. The primary ministry of these two is to preach or to proclaim something. What are they proclaiming? What are they preaching? Well, I believe it's clear their message is a message of repentance and coming judgment. In other words, these two are are prophets in the Old Testament sense. And in the Old Testament, prophets often would preach whether it be Israel who was wayward or the surrounding nations they were often sent to, uh, they would often be sent by God to preach a message of repentance, turn from your sins, turn to the true and living God, and so on, or otherwise judgment is coming. That's the idea, basically. But they are also called, not just prophets, but they're called, as I said, the two witnesses. And a witness is someone who testifies to something that they have seen, right? If you're a witness to a crime and they ask you to come into court, well, they don't really ask you, they summon you. You have no choice. You come in and they say, okay, now what did you see? You were an eyewitness. What did you see? Tell us what you saw. A witness is somebody who sees something and then testifies to what they have seen. Hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to it in a moment. What is their ministry all about? Well, first of all, They conduct their ministry during the first half of the tribulation period. And they're going to proclaim to the world, not just the message of repentance, of course, but they're going to be proclaiming that the disasters that people are seeing 
are really the judgment of God being poured out on the world. Now, we talked about how the first three and a half years, the judgment of God is not going to be as severe as the second half of the seven, right? So much so that there are people that are going to think, this is not God, if they even believe in God, right? This is just natural disasters, you know, how people tend to do that. Because they don't want to hear that it's God judging. They don't want to think about a God who is real and who judges sin. So they do their best to kind of explain away what God is trying to do, use to get their attention. And the two witnesses are going to be telling people in this world, look, these are not just coincidences or, coincidences or natural disasters. This is the hand of God. God is trying to get your attention. He is trying to tell you that if you don't repent and turn to him away from your idolatry, uh, much worse things are coming. And of course, as they move into the second half of the tribulation period, called the Great Tribulation, well, the judgments are going to escalate, become more uh, severe, going to come uh, quicker in pace. And of course, ultimately, these judgments are going to lead to eternal separation from God if people don't repent. Hell. So the two witnesses are going to be proclaiming that these judgments are indeed the hand of God trying to get people's attention. Besides that, warning people, they're going to be preaching the gospel. They're going to be telling people that, you know what, there is still time. There is hope. It's kind of like Noah, though, you know. For 120 years as Noah was building the ark, he was preaching to the people of his generation. Nobody listened. Jeremiah preached 46 years. Weeping the whole time. Called, he was called the weeping prophet. Nobody listened. I would imagine that there might be a whole lot of people who are going to listen, although there will be some. But they will be calling people to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, verse 3, where God says he calls them my two witnesses, that's very strong in the Greek. It really is the two witnesses of mine, indicating they have been used by God before. Now hold on to that thought. We'll come back to that. I want you to understand something. I believe, and I think we have shown you through the study up to this point, the rapture of the church happens sometime before that final seven-year period starts. The technical term is the 70th week of Daniel. And that comes out of Daniel chapter 9, where God says he has set aside 70, seven-year period, 490 years to deal with the nation of Israel. 69 of those seven-year periods are going to be contiguous. From the time the commandment goes forth to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem under Nehemiah until the coming of the Messiah, the Prince, is going to be 483 years or 173,880 days. It would start when the commandment went forth to Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That was March 14, 445 B.C., Add those days to that starting point, brings you out to April 6, 32 A.D., Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus presented himself as Messiah, but they rejected him. At that time, God's prophetic time clock for Israel stopped, and God had one last seven-year period that he set aside to deal with Israel. In between Palm Sunday and that final seven-year period, there has been about 2,000 years now that we have that's been inserted called the church age. When the rapture of the church happens, I don't see why there should be too much time between the rapture of the church and the Antichrist then signing this peace treaty and the final seven years beginning to tick off, beginning to to go. But here it is. The church is gone, all right? 
The church is gone. The light has been taken away from the earth. Who is going to bring the gospel? The church is out of here. God never leaves himself without a witness. And so he recalls the two for special service during the first half of the 70th week of Daniel to preach the gospel to Israel, yes, but also to the whole world. And they're going to preach a message of repentance. How do I know it's a message of repentance? Because they're clothed in what? Sackcloth. And, and, and that's very typical of Old Testament prophets who were mourning over the sins of the people to the point where they put on sackcloth as they were calling the people to repentance. So these two are going to be preaching a message of repentance, mourning over the sins of God's people. And what are they mourning about primarily? They're mourning about the fact that the Jewish people have embraced a false Messiah, who they think is their true Messiah, right? They've rejected Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I have come to you in my Father's name, and me you did not receive. Another will come to you in his own name. Talking about the Antichrist. Him you will receive. When the Antichrist comes on the world scene, the Jews initially are going to think he's their Messiah. I mean, he's going to let them rebuild their temple. He is going to free them from the persecution of the surrounding nations, primarily, of course, the Muslim nations. And so they're going to think that the Antichrist is their Messiah. And for a while, the Antichrist is going to usher in, not just for the Jewish people, but for the whole world, a time of peace and and prosperity and so on. And in the midst of this, who's reigning on everybody's parade? The two witnesses, right? And their message is completely out of step with the message of the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all those that are following them, including, listen, the liberal apostate church, which is going to be left on the earth after the rapture. There's a lot of people and a lot of churches who call themselves Christians that don't know the Lord at all. They don't know the Lord. They're into rituals and ceremonies. They give them lip service. They're into everything but what the Bible really says about how to be saved. And they're going to be left. The liberal apostate church, along with every other unbeliever, pagan, new ager, whoever you want to lump into there that doesn't know God, they're going to be sucked into the Antichrist deception. And he's going to be, you know, unifying the world under a one world government, the false prophet under a one world religion. There's going to be a time of peace and prosperity. And here's the two witnesses going, "Uh uh-uh, don't listen. You're being deceived. Look at what God's doing and pointing to various judgments that are happening during the first three and a half years and trying to get the, get these people's attention. And of course, they're going to be, seem so out of touch with what's really going on. You know, you got friends that think you're just really out there. You're just really, where, where, where are you coming from, man? You know, because you don't see things the way they see things. They don't think about judgment. They don't want to think about judgment. God is a God of love. He would never judge. And the world is like that. The world is going to be saying, oh, peace and safety, prosperity, new age, the golden age is here. The two prophets are going, "Uh uh-uh, it's the calm before the storm. You better get right with God. Well, as Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction is going to come upon them. Like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So it's coming. Judgment is coming. But you can imagine, though, as you're in the first three and a half years, and things, you know, are bad here and there, but they're not as bad as it's going to be. That The world is going to be justifying. They're going to be explaining things away. Now, is anybody going to be listening to these two guys? Yes. 
we know that they're going to convert 144,000 Jews to Christ and probably others. And then all of these people, now these 144,000 Jews, as we have already said, are going to be dynamic, spirit-filled. I mean, you talk about, you know, Paul the Apostles unleashed on the world, 144,000 Paul the Apostles. I mean, they're going to have a phenomenal, phenomenal effect. They're going to have a massive amount of conversions. And, of course, the people that they convert, they're going to be preaching the gospel. This is not a time when nobody's going to be sharing the gospel. I mean, God always leaves himself a witness. Nobody can ever say there was no light, there was no truth. God, you you hid it from us. I don't care if you look up into the creation, up at the night sky, the creation declares the glory of God, the firmament shows forth his handiwork, day into day utter speech, night into night reveals knowledge. There is no place you can go on the face of the earth where you cannot hear a universal language. The creation is crying out that God is real. Now, by looking at the creation, you won't know who he is, what his name is, what he expects of you, what he's done for us through Christ. That's true. But if you look into the creation and you're somewhere in the remote area of, a, of the world, uh, in some remote tribal village or whatever it might be, and in the sincerity of your heart, you look into the creation and, and see that it's so wonderful, that everything fits together so perfectly, and that we ourselves are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we have an exact counterpart by which we can have uh, bring forth children and so on. None of that could have happened by accident. There had to be somebody who made this and in, your, in the sincerity of your heart. If you cry out to this God, whoever he is, that you want to know him, I guarantee you, if he has to send an angel from heaven to deliver the gospel to you, he will never let anybody go to hell that wants to know him simply for lack of information. I'm totally convinced of that. We see angels in the book of Revelation preaching the gospel to people. So why can't God have already done it many times uh, before this, right? But these two witnesses are going to convert 144,000 Jews who are going to then begin to evangelize the world. They're going to have a massive effect. Many, many, I think millions of people are going to be converted until they are killed by the Antichrist and his followers. We see that in chapter 14. They're all martyred by this time. And when the last one is martyred, I believe God is saying, fine, you didn't want to hear the truth. I sent you the truth and you killed my prophets you killed my witnesses, that's going to signal then the beginning of the end. The final judgments are going to be poured out. Those that are going to be so horrific, it's hard for us to even imagine how bad it's going to really be. Well, verse 3, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees... And the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. What is that all about? Well, out of the 404 verses in the book of Revelation, there are over 800 references to the Old Testament. That's why if you study the book of Revelation, it's such a blessing because it will take you into every nook and cranny of the Bible. And if you don't understand what is being used in the way of an idiom or a symbol... Get out of concordance and try to find it in the Old Testament, and chances are you will. This happens to come out of Zechariah chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. You can read the whole chapter. In fact, you can back up and read the end of chapter 3 into Zechariah 4. Let me tell you what's going on, though, okay? Because it comes right out of that. 
Israel has returned from Babylonian captivity. And out of the two to three million that went into Babylonian captivity, uh, as the Babylonians allowed whoever wanted to return back to Israel to go and return, only about 50,000 returned. Can you imagine that? All the rest of the Jews had built houses, started businesses, were prospering in Babylon. And they started businesses, and they prospered, and many of them were comfortable in Babylon. Isn't it sad when God's people get comfortable in the world? But in a way, it worked out to be a blessing because the ones that came back were the most committed to the Lord. To repatriate the land, they were the most committed, willing to make the 700 or so mile journey over rough terrain back to Jerusalem to do what? To, first of all, clear out. The city had been reduced to rubble. The temple was totally destroyed. A pile of rocks everywhere. Just millions of rocks. And you work all day removing rocks. They wanted to rebuild the temple first. You, you, You work all day to move rocks away so you can rebuild the temple. After you work hard all day, it looks like you haven't done anything, right? You've got a million rocks to move. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. day, by day.